Excellent, excellent. Well, it's good to see everybody. It's good to be with you this Sunday afternoon, and we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We're continuing on, and this is one of the favorite passages in Ephesians that I have. Uh, I want to read it before I begin, and then we will uh, dive right in. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What an incredible passage. And and the first question that comes to my mind is, how should we measure God's love? Paul here says God's love for His people is so long, it's as long as eternity past. It's so wide as to include all nations, as it were, so high to ring praises from angels in heaven and so deep as to cancel the claims of hell on our soul. How do we measure the love of God for us? We heard it in Psalm 136. I didn't even know Jason was going to do that. And what an incredible thought as we repeated over and over, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And in the Hebrew, actually, this isn't even in my notes. This is just free today. The Hebrew has said, steadfast love is covenant-keeping, enduring, indestructible love that's not rooted in us, but in God's character. And we see this in the Old Testament as some of the story of Israel was rehearsed in that psalm and how the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Because you know what's underlining that whole psalm? Is that Israel didn't deserve it. They kept blowing it. They kept saying, I'd rather go back to Egypt. They kept saying, God, we don't really want you to be in charge of us. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We want our own kingdom. And yet God's steadfast covenant-keeping love that wouldn't give up that wouldn't quit, continued to save and deliver Israel. And it's the same steadfast love that saves and delivers us. It's incredible. So if the steadfast love of the Lord, the immeasurable love of God, is a comfort, and it is, if it's an assurance of our salvation, and it should be, as we're going to see, that, that even the reason you and I are Christians today is not because of how great we are. The reason you're still a Christian today is because of God's love for you in Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to keep you in Jesus. The Spirit's love for you. Now, if it is a comfort and an assurance and a joy, and it is, then this means that This kind of knowledge is something we need to remind ourselves about every day. But in this passage, Paul goes beyond simply comfort and assurance and joy. He wants you and I to know that it is a means of power in our lives. He uses the word power a couple times in this passage. 
You see, if why I serve God is also how I serve God, then the motive of greater love always precedes the action of greater power. In fact, since we only and always do what we love the most, then the only way we're going to experience the power of God in our lives is to have a greater love for Him. Obedience to Jesus. Turning away from sin. Killing sin. We have to get to the level of motives. Without the love of God in Christ as our motive, there's no power. But on the other hand, if we have an overwhelming affection for Jesus, then it's going to produce in our hearts an overwhelming power to defeat sin. Why? Because we love Him more than we love the sin. We want to please Him more than we want to please ourselves. We find fullness of joy and endless satisfaction at His right hand rather than in the things of this world that always disappoint. They always let us down. They always fade away. They always wear out. It's the reason the top ten hits are never the same. Although I think somewhere in 1985, that was about the golden age. Top ten. Anybody amen that? I don't know. but um, it, yeah, Someone said 70s over here. Yeah, We could quibble. We could quibble. But why? Because things in this earth wear out. The things that were great become not so great. The things that we find joy in, we don't find joy in. Only God is endless and infinite and everlasting. And you will never exhaust the fullness of joy and satisfaction that you can find in Him. So, in this passage, the first thing I want you to see is remember your position in Christ. Verses 14 and 15, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is humbled here by the Father's purposes in in verse 14. He says, for this reason, and he's going back to what he had already been arguing in the previous two chapters, and because of everything that's true in the previous two chapters, especially the words at the end of chapter 2, he says, I fall on my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. And when he says, I, I bow my knees, this is the idea of if you were to go into royalty and a king, say you were a subject of a king, and you go in and you bow and you say, you're the king and I'm the subject, I'm yours, do with me whatever you want. You're the boss, I'm not. That's the picture of bowing the knees. And here Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Paul has a reason He's not doing it under compulsion. He's not doing it because he has to, though God has every right. In fact, we know from Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord at the end of the age. But Paul here says, I bow my knees for this reason. We're in chapter 1, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 3 of chapter 1. Later, he says in chapter 1 that we are to the praise of His glory, that we are, we are to be holy and blameless before Him because in love He predestined us and adopted us. We, Paul gave thanks at the end of chapter 1, and then he reminded us that not only Jewish people but Gentiles also are one in the family of God. That now the dividing wall of partition is torn down, and in chapter 2, verse 18, through Jesus Everyone has access in the Spirit to the Father. Now there's no 
distance between us and God. Now we have access in Jesus. And Paul says, this is the reason I bow my knee. I was far away and God brought me near. You and I were without hope and without God. And at the high point of the ages, the Father gave His Son to bring us near to God so that we could actually come into His presence and not be wiped out. We could call Him Father. We're part of His family. We've been adopted. It's incredible. And all of this, Paul had said in chapter 2, is not by our works, but a result of grace. He says, chapter 2, verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says this is God who's rich in mercy and because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in chapter 2 He made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. What an incredible gospel message. Apart from Jesus, we're called spiritually dead, Paul says in chapter 2. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We're under the prince of the power of the air that's at work in the sons of disobedience, he says in chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, even while we were dead, made us alive. And how did he do it? He gave us his son to die in our place for our sins. And we could receive that gift, not by earning it or working for it, but simply by grace through faith, believing it. I think I used the illustration once before. If, if I gave you my new Bible, my, my, my new Bible for the church plant, it's, I don't know, it's got a nice leather cover, and I said, this is a gift for you. This is for you. All you have to do is receive it. If you never receive it and take it, you never have the gift. And this is the gift of salvation that Paul is talking about is, here is Jesus for you in your place, for you, and all you have to do is receive it. And how do I receive it? By faith, believing that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and rose again. What a simple message. Simple to understand, of course. But it's hard to receive it, isn't it? Because we want to be king in our life. We want to be the boss. We want to look in the mirror and say, yes, your majesty. But the gospel calls us to bow the knee to Jesus and say, yes, your majesty. And Paul in chapter 3, verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul is bowing his knees because he's confident of the Father's care. The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, verse 15 of chapter 3. The one who has made a temple, as it were, of Human hearts, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul simply calls Father. The one who's infinitely great, who is the creator of heaven and earth that we sang about in the first song. All praise to Him. He made the stars and the galaxies. And Paul says he's to be called Father. Our Father in heaven. The Paul, Paul who said in chapter 3, verse 8, we looked at it last week, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, He can now call God Father. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Because we have Jesus. Because Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven and clean and have His righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. 
Isn't that an incredible thought? You know your life. You wouldn't want it to be on the big screen. You want to keep those secrets secret, as we all do. And in Jesus, the blood of Christ completely cleanses us from all of that. And we're clean. And we're a new creation. And the old has passed away and the new has come. That is really good news. Paul here says that, that this is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's as if Paul is saying, I'm unworthy to appear before the Father because of who I am. I'm the least of all the saints, but I'm confident that I have access because my worth is not simply in who I am. My worth is in who Jesus is and what he did for me. So we have, we have an advocate. We have someone who ushers us into the Father's presence. Again, King George, the new king in England. You and I can't just go in. I've been to Buckingham Palace right there in the square. In fact, I was there with my mother. She even fell down. Is she in here? No, she's helping the kids. I can't even. I won't even tell the story. We were there. <laughs> Nobody let us in. I knocked on the gate. Rattled the gate a little bit. Nobody let us in. I had no access to, to then the queen. You and I don't have access to King George. As much as you think, we need someone who's got connections, who has access. You know, someone like his family. Someone who has the ability to get us an audience with the king. Here is what Paul is saying is that Jesus has given us an eternal audience with the king of heaven, the father. We have access into his presence at any time, anywhere. This is really good news. Why? Because the one who created all things, who made you and I, is the one who says, you are welcome into my presence through my son. And Paul is going to argue that this love is what empowers us to overcome sin, to kill sin in our lives. In fact, holiness and sin are expressions of uh, holiness are expressions of our true love, as is sin, really, because when we sin, we're just loving that rather than God. And isn't it, sometimes the weight of that is crushing. If you've lived life any length of time, sometimes you're forced to cry out, God, I don't love you enough because such and such a sin is present in my life and it's been present and I haven't gotten rid of it. I feel like I just don't love you enough. And if I had loved you enough, this sin wouldn't be in my life. You ever felt that way? Where your love seems so weak? The gospel says you're right. You don't love God enough, but he loves you more. You and a world of others like you. He loves you as a member of his own family. He loves you. And he gave his son for you. And he poured out his spirit to change your heart so that you would love him more. Greater love, Paul says, is the means to greater power in our life, to put sin to death, to become holy, to be like Jesus. And so Paul in verses 16 and 17 says, pray, pray for God to demonstrate his power. Look what he says, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The father gives of his 
riches. Notice it's not the riches of your glory. It's the riches of His glory. His glorious riches that are infinite and immeasurable. Paul had told the Philippians in chapter 4, my God will supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What an incredible thought. My God will supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Do you have needs? I do. I know we all do. God can supply those needs according to His glorious riches. It's an incredible thought, isn't it, that we are helpless, we're desperate, we have needs that we can't deal with, we can't fix. And God says, I'm able to supply all your needs. All the blessings that God has for us he are tied up in the work of Jesus. Paul here prays that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ, Jesus, may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the Father gives of His riches, the Spirit gives of His power, verse 16, that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And we're going to see the Son giving His life, but the Spirit giving His power that you would be strengthened. Now, when Paul here says that you would be strengthened with the Spirit's power, we sang about it, we read about it in the psalm. What kind of power does God have? He made the heavens and the earth. He spoke it into existence. It didn't wear Him out. It wasn't a lot of work. Uh, we just bought a home in Benicia uh, this week. It's crazy. I'm still reeling from it because it happened in about five, six days. So I started packing up. Yeah, I got Marcos over here giving me crazy looks. Yes, I bought a house. Yeah. Um, so I started packing up, right? I mean, I got books everywhere. That's what happens when you're a nerd. And I have books everywhere. And I'm trying to pack these things up. And I got about six boxes in and I ran out of power. I'm sweaty. I'm tired. My back hurts. And I was just packing books. And I said, I got to take a break, Jen. I'm done for Saturday. Like that did me in. I'm done. I don't know if we're going to make it. Stop laughing. It's not that funny. <laughs> the Father gives of the Spirit's power that you would be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit in your inner being. And notice he says it's in your inner being. It's not an external power source. According to the new covenant, when you believe in Jesus, the Spirit dwells in you. So this is in your inner being, in your soul. It's like a, a well springing up within our soul. This is not like external spiritual injections of power. This is not nitrous oxide on a, on a little tiny car engine. This is the internal combustion of a, of a V8 muscle car that inherently has more power. That's for you, Jack. Yeah, he got a, I got a thumbs up on that. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly in our inner being, we're being renewed day by day. This is the reality that the Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to minister the Father's power in our lives. Paul had prayed this in chapter 1, that you would, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know that you are the Father's inheritance, that He loves you, 
And that resurrection power is at work on your behalf. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life. And this is what Paul's praying again. In verse 17, he's praying that Christ, Jesus, may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this word dwell in verse 17, it is a very strong term in the Greek. It's the idea of Jesus taking up residence in your heart so as to settle down and be at home. Again, it's fresh in my mind because I bought a house this week. We're already making plans to remodel the house, to renovate it. It won't feel like a home at first. And we're already sad that the rental home we've lived in four years that we've made memories in, that we've settled down in, that we're leaving. How much more is this idea that the Lord Jesus who is building, He's the head of the church, and the Father through the Spirit is building the church to be the house of God, the temple of God, that Jesus would settle down and feel at home in our hearts by faith. That's what Paul's saying. That He is in the process of, we're His workmanship, chapter 2, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus, and Jesus is in the process of turning us into the house of God where He settles down and feels at home. For all eternity, it's going to be true. The people of God, in the presence of God, forever. Christ Jesus is not only with us, He's in us. And He'll never leave us as orphans. And the purpose of the Father in giving the Son is to unite us to Him so that we're His forever. And we become more and more like Jesus. And the Father's image is renewed in us. And so Paul is imagining that this prayer is going to have God's power at work in us so that we would be suitable residents for the risen Jesus. That's incredible. That is an incredible prayer for us. That would transform our lives, our church, our community. We need to be praying that God would do this, that He would send revival and that people would be delivered from their bondage to sin and slavery and the mess of their lives. And that they would become a part of God's kingdom forever. Now the reason we have riches and power is that Christ Jesus gives us His identity. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 22 Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father, and we've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Now, you and I are not currently sitting in heaven, but in identity we are. Meaning, we've already been considered raised. We already are considered inheritors of the kingdom of God. We've already been placed at the right hand of God the Father, the place of ownership and authority over the new earth. We're seated beside Him, chapter 2, verse 6. We rest upon Him, chapter 2, verse 20. He indwells us here in this verse. He's going to fill us in verse 19. And we're going to grow up in Him as our head, chapter 4, verse 15. Now one of the church fathers, St. Patrick of Ireland, uh, you might only know him because of St. Patrick's Day. You should read his confessions. It's one of the two documents we have of Patrick of Ireland. Well, there was such a movement that came out of Ireland. So when Patrick started sharing the gospel of Jesus on the island of Ireland, uh, there were 
not very many Christians, and by the end of his life, the whole island was Christianized. And then they began sending missionaries out to Europe, mainland Europe. And uh, a number of years later, uh, as an honor of Patrick, there was this prayer that was written, not by Patrick, but in honor of him, and it's called the Prayer of St. Patrick, and here's what it says, Christ be with me and within me, Christ behind me and before me, Christ beneath me and above me, may your salvation, Lord, be always ours this day and forevermore. Now think about this, without the Father's riches, His glorious riches on our behalf, we're poor, spiritually infinitely poor. Without the Spirit's power, we're helpless, and without Christ's life, we're dead. So Paul here prays that we would know the Father's riches. His glorious riches would strengthen us with the Spirit's power, and Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, giving us life. And then Paul goes on in the prayer to pray for our reception of that power so that Christ and so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The second part of Paul's prayer is that the church there in Ephesus, being rooted and established in love, may have power. Now notice he's not saying that you don't have this and you need to get this. He said you're already rooted and established in this love. You need to comprehend it. You need to be aware of it. It's not that we don't have Jesus if you're a Christian. No, you have Jesus and you have the Spirit. So it's not like you need to get more. The idea is you have it and you're not aware of it. And you need your eyes to be open to see what you already have. We were going, again, I got to use the illustration. I'm starting to pack up things, and what do I find? Things I weren't, wasn't aware I already had. Oh, wow, look at that book. I have that book. Wow, I have two copies of that book. I have three copies of that book. Because I bought it three times because I didn't think I had it. That's what Paul's getting at here is you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if you've put faith, you have it. You need to be aware of this. You've been rooted and grounded in love. Now, may you have strength to comprehend. You see the difference? It's not that you would get more. It's not spiritual push-ups, right? You just need to build up those spiritual muscles. It's, no, you need to comprehend what's already true. And it's not just you. It's all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ? It's for a specific purpose, to comprehend, to grasp, to understand it instinctually, not merely intellectually. And I know I'm like a broken record with this, but it's so important. The way you know you comprehend this instinctually is when you're pressed by the cares of life and you're tempted by sin, you run to the Father rather than running from Him. You run to the people of God to help you rather than running away and thinking you can handle it on your own or you got to clean yourself up before you come back to Jesus and all of those things. That's how you know you comprehend it. <coughs> so what does he say? You need to understand first how secure God's love 
is you are rooted and grounded in love. Rooted. What an easy picture to understand. A tree that has deep roots and therefore grows strong. Grounded. A building that has a strong foundation and therefore cannot be shaken. I could imagine Paul in prison looking out the prison cell window, seeing a tree and seeing a building and saying, that's a good illustration of what we're talking about. Love is both the soil in which we're to be rooted and grow, as well as the foundation that we're to stand on. You see what he's saying here? That don't lose the illustration that the main point is that you need to be rooted and grounded in love. In love. Love for God and love for others. If you're rooted and grounded in, in something else, then you're not going to be able to endure. You might be blown over by the cares of life, the winds of life. You might fall down in the earthquakes of life, as it were. Rooted and grounded. We were just up at Yosemite this summer, and we went over to the Sequoia Grove just for a little bit to see them, and I, I love those big trees. They're enormous. They're just... And these aren't even the biggest ones I've seen. There's some other groves that are bigger, but you smell the, the loaminess of the soil. You just smell it. And I, you love that. I love that smell. I don't know. It's a California smell. I'm a California boy. That smell is, to me, the mountains in California. The smell that, we should, that should pervade us if we're rooted and grounded is love. We should be known and characterized by love. That, that it should be so obvious that, the, that as we are with each other and as we're ministering to this community, that, that what people see and smell, as it were, is the, the love that we have for one another and for God. And then, of course, grounded. Uh, you know, our civil code in California seems way over the top until an earthquake hits. And then you go, yep, there's a reason the rebar has to be six inches thick. I know that's excessive. Six inches is not. <laughs> I was exaggerating. It's for effect. It's the same way in our relationship with Jesus. We're rooted and grounded in love. Do you remember when you came to Jesus? What was it that captured you? It was his love for you. It was the thought that, wow, the God of this earth, the one who made the heavens and the earth, loves me. He knows everything about me. He knows what I've done. He knows my past. He knows my sin. And He loves me and He forgives me. And He wants me to be a part of His family. This is what Paul's praying we would remember. That we're loved by God. That you would know how high and wide and deep and long it is. Now, he says, understand, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of christ but then he says it surpasses knowledge like gee thanks paul i'm supposed to know this but actually it surpasses knowledge it's infinite why does he say this well the phrase is a poetic way for him to express the the comprehensive eternal infinite nature of god's love in christ in other words it can't be measured but you can desire to know it more and more in fact, all of eternity, we're going to grow in our knowledge of God's love for us. God's love is infinite and immeasurable. I heard a story about a, a prison that was found by Napoleon 
Bonaparte in his conquests, and it had been used by the Spanish Inquisition to imprison Protestant Christians for their faith in Spain. And in one of the cells, they found a prisoner that had long been dead, but he had left behind a testimony on the wall. He had scratched a rough cross with the four words written in Spanish, above height, below depth, width on the left, and length on the right. Testifying of the surpassing love of Christ, even in his sufferings in a Spanish prison, being persecuted for his faith. Now, this is just a poetic way of saying the immeasurable love of Christ, but I want to take a moment and think on these descriptions. Think about the width of God's love. How wide is God's love? Well, I love it that our God saves men and women from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. It's as wide as every nation and tribe on the planet. Black, white, rich, poor, slave, freedmen, there's no difference, Scripture says. Revelation 5 says at the end of the age, there will be people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue worshiping around the throne and all of us are one under the blood of Jesus. In other words, it's as wide as the world. Ephesians 2, verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I love it that it's that wide. You know why? 2,000 years after Jesus came, we're on the other side of the planet. We, if, if Jesus had only come to save the Jewish people, we on the other side of the planet here in California would have no hope and we'd be without God. But it's so wide as to save us. Think about the length of God's love. It stretches from eternity past into eternity future. And eternity future is hard enough to comprehend. Eternity past will make your brain break. No beginning. My oldest friends I've known since elementary school and some of them even before, since I was four years old. And my love for my oldest friends is naturally stronger than my love for my newest friends. Now think about your oldest friends. It's nothing compared to the eternal love of God. Paul had said in chapter 1, verse for that he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He set his affection upon us in eternity past. That's an incredible thought. Think about the height of God's love. It reaches to the heavens. There is a thrill in heights, isn't there? I can't even watch the YouTube videos of those crazy people that stand on the top of skyscrapers without any tie-offs. Now, when I worked at the oil refinery, there was a thrill in climbing the highest towers. I, I even got to go here in Benicia to the top of the South Flare when we put a new flare head on. I had to go up in a crane. Whoa. Uh, one time, never again. Even more thrilling, I would argue, is climbing Half Dome. In Yosemite, I've done it twice. And you get to those cables at the top, and you go, wow, one mistake, and downward we fall. But even if you could outdo everyone and say, I walked on the moon, God's love is higher still than that. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, he's going to raise us up and seat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's how high God's love is. And the depth of God's love 
Think about how far He descended to save us. Ephesians 3.8, it's as deep as hell. Paul, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now this is just a metaphor. It's not meant to be taken so woodenly literal that there's measurements to God's love. No, Paul is just simply saying, meditate on how great and infinite God's love for you is in Jesus. And when you do, you'll be filled with power. Power to get up in the morning and praise His name. Power to get up in the morning and say no to sin. Power to get up in the morning and to suffer patiently waiting for His mercy and kindness to be poured out on you. That His peace would guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And that's what we need, isn't it? I think of April Thompson that we've been praying for. She had gotten out of the hospital and was put into um, a care clinic in Napa this week, but had to be rushed back yesterday to the hospital. Really, really, actually, we need to pray for her. I'm going to pray for her after the sermon, but she, they didn't give her medication for 24 hours. Her, 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 her heart rate went up and her asthma kicked in again. And And she's now in the ER at Kaiser again, and so we need to be continuing to pray for April. What will give you endurance to trust the Father, to to pray to Him, to, 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 to believe that He is good and does good? To know and meditate and grasp and comprehend His love for you. That's it. To grow in your understanding of the knowledge of God's love for you in Jesus will give you the strength in your life to stand up under any pressure, under any trials, to say no to any sin, to love people who are unlovable, your enemies, at work, at your, uh, you know, to, to, to trust the Father when you can't pay the bills, when, when you don't know where the next paycheck's going to come from. To trust that He loves you and He's going to provide. And when He does, that you would praise Him and you would love Him. Well, then He says here at the end that you would know the love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the result of all of this knowing in verse 19? That you're filled with all the fullness of God. Which is an incredibly hard thing to think about and understand. We are finite creatures, human beings. Yes, we're made in the image of God, but how could we be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, and this is where our American individualism leads us astray. He's not talking about you and I individually being filled with all the fullness of God. Remember the illustration he's been talking about since chapter 2? That we're the temple, the place where God's glory dwells, and the Holy Spirit's going to be made Uh, He's going to make it in chapter 2, verse 22. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We just heard in chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ is going to dwell in your hearts through faith. And now He says that when you understand the love of God in Christ, you all as the temple, as the church, are filled with all the fullness of God. That doesn't mean that you and I become gods. It means that if people want to meet God on this earth, they no longer go to Jerusalem and the old temple. They now come to us 
and they see God in us. And what of God they see in us that's on display the most, according to this passage, is the love of God. The love of God. A love that that defies comprehension. How is it that you could love that person? How is it that you could forgive? How is it that you could reconcile and restore relationships that seem completely broken? How is it that marriages that are falling apart could be restored? How is it that enemies could be made friends? Only the love of God can do it. Only. And so he says, grow in this love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The love of God is greater than the dimensions of our knowing. My kids growing up, we used to have this little back and forth when they were in bed at night. And I would say, I love you. And they would say, I love you more. Then I would say, I love you the mostest. And then they would say, I love you to the moon. And then I would say, I love you to the moon and back. And then we would just, it would just go on and on and keep adding sentences as the creativity of a child's mind grows and grows. This is the idea is that we tend to measure the love of God based on our experience. And we add love when we're blessed and we subtract love in our difficulties. But Paul here says the love of God surpasses knowledge, so we shouldn't measure it based on our circumstances, but rather on the character of God, on the character of God. This is why Paul then goes in verses 20 and 21 and says a final word of praise. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. You know what this means? If he's able to do far more abundantly above all we ask or think, you can't ask or think too much of God. Because he's able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. It's not our asking that he's answering, not even our thinking. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all of that. By the way, Paul invented a word here in the Greek. Ask Jason after church. He's he's, He's the Greek expert now. He's two years of Greek. You ask Jason. It doesn't have anything to do with us, of course, right? Because back in verse 16, he says it's the riches of his grace. Now, this should give you purpose in prayer. This should change how you pray for your loved ones. It should change how you pray for yourself. It will affect how you tell others about Jesus. Because the one who hears your prayers is the one who's able to do far more abundantly above all you can ask or think. If Paul had said... God is able to do all you ask or think. You would say, amen. That's a comfort. If Paul, but that's not what he says, right? If Paul had said God is able to do more than you can ask or think, you'd say, amen. Paul decides to make up a word by adding a bunch of prepositions to the front of this word and saying, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. And it's, according to the power at work within us, which is the Holy Spirit, not us. The things you want to accomplish for the glory of Christ, in your wildest imaginations, He's able to do those things. He's able to do far more abundantly above, beyond those things. He's generous. He's a generous Father. He's a good Father. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so Paul says, Because this is who he is. And because this is what he does, he loves us. And he brings us into his family. What he deserves, verse 21, is glory. 
Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, we naturally want to glorify our own selves, don't we? We want to put our name in lights. We want to talk about what we've done, our accomplishments. We're even taught to do it. We get jobs that way. We fill out resumes, or if you're really fancy, CVs, curriculum vitaes in Latin. And you talk about all the letters behind your name and what you're qualified to do. Man is like a flickering little candle next to God who is the blazing sun of his own sovereign glory. But the father, he wants to glorify his son. And the son wants to glorify the father. And the spirit wants to glorify the father and son. And the father wants to glorify the son and spirit. And this mutual glorification of our triune God demonstrates to us that what is our due to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit is to give Him glory with our lips, with our lives, with everything that we are and everything that we do. God is going to glorify Himself in the church. He's going to glorify Himself here at Trinity Church in Benicia. And He's going to do it forever and ever. And He's... There's never a moment that the glory is not due Him. There's, there's never a moment that when He does far more abundantly above all we could ask or think in our lives that we should say, I deserve the glory. No, God deserves the glory. In our moments of success, He's able. In our failures, He's able. In our greatest fears, He's able. When the challenge ahead is too great, He's able and what's amazing is the father says, oh, I know that I deserve the glory, but you know what? I'm going to let you share in the glory. I'm going to raise you up into the heavenlies and seat you with Christ. And Christ is going to be settled down and feel at home in your hearts, dwell in your hearts by faith. And the spirit is taking up resident in your heart so that you're the temple of God. And so you're going to participate in the glory as well. And I'm going to participate in the glory as well. This is the power of God at work in us. It's our mission to go out and make disciples of the nations, to, to tell people of this good news. And we should just say, Lord, don't pass us by. But when we think about this love of God for us, as we meditate on it, I would use the word revel in it, joy in it, marinate in it. I don't know. That's I must be hungry for lunch. As you revel in the love of God in Christ this afternoon, as you ponder it, as you let it captivate and capture your mind, isn't this why we sing? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every man on earth a quill and I mean every stock on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever more endure the saints and angels' song. We, you have been loved. You have been loved with an infinite, eternal love by the Father in Christ. And it's been made real to your hearts through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. May you and I have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to comprehend and grasp this love today. Don't you need it? I need it today. You need it today. This is the most important message you could hear today. 
is that the Father loves you. And that His Son is for you. His life is in you. He's settled down and made Himself at home in your hearts by faith. And that the Spirit is indwelling you and giving you the Father's power out of the riches of His glory so that you would be strengthened. That you would be able to say no to sin and you would be able to glorify God and you would be able to endure temptation and you would be able to stand up under suffering. And you would be patient in prayer. And that you would rest in joy and peace in the Father's sovereign, loving care. Father, thank you for this time. Would you do a work in us? Would you open our eyes to see this reality in a greater way? Use your passage before us today in Ephesians 3 to encourage our hearts. And even as we respond now in communion and singing, May it be the glory that's due your name. May it be a heart of worship to ascribe to you the glory that's due you. I pray this in Jesus' name.